Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great love for us, that even in our unworthiness and in our sinfulness, out of your love and your kindness, you brought resolution. You brought a solution, and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his great work on the cross. Thank you for his great model and uh, how he sets up for us a template for living. Father, as we open our Bibles at this time, would you please just use this time? Uh, Just encourage us, confront us where it's needed, and uh, help us to just allow your Holy Spirit to take your word and to use it deep inside us to bring about the change and the conformity to the image of Christ that is so needed. We just commit this time, Lord, where we sit, we think, and we engage with your word. Just use it well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated, and I wonder if you've ever heard of Richard Pernecki. I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, Richard Pernecki was 52 years old when he finally decided, I've just had enough. And he moved to the Twin Lakes region of south-central, southwest Alaska. It's a very isolated region. And there, in 1968, when he was 52 years old, he began to build a cabin. And uh, all by himself, isolated and far from anyone. Some of you might have seen his story. It's been featured on PBS. It's a fascinating story. I highly recommend it. It's an interesting guy. He was uh, somewhat of a self-taught naturalist. He was a diesel mechanic by trade and a carpenter. And at age 52, he was unmarried, no kids. And I wonder if you can relate to how he felt there. He just decided, I'm going to get away from everyone. He did a beautiful job on his cabin. There's a couple more pictures of it. For the next 30 years, Richard Pranecki lived in isolation on the shores of Twin Lakes, Alaska. On occasion, a bush pilot friend would fly in and resupply and uh, give him his uh, uh, needs that he needed for subsidy, uh, subsistence living. Uh, He stayed there year-round, and he was 82 years old, 30 years later that he finally left and he lived about five more years after that with his brother. I have bad news for some of you. You're not allowed to do this. (laughs) You know, I suspect that some of you, um, like I have lately, have thought that it might just be a great idea to just get away from all the people. I just don't like the way everyone's acting right now. I don't like the mindset of our world. I don't like the condition of our community and our country. I have great connections, by the way, in Alaska. (laughs) And in just a few hours, I could make those connections and I could be by boat or plane far, far away from anywhere. And I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 this morning and There's good news in Matthew 9, the bad news for some of us who are longing to isolate ourselves and to insulate ourselves from this world, who would love to just flee. Let's just get away. Let's just get away from the crowds. Get away from all these rotten people. I would just do so much better in the bush of Alaska. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to find out from the model that is presented in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're just not allowed to do this. In fact, it's just the opposite. You know that God's people are not to 
not to isolate or flee from people, but more than ever, these are days to engage with people. This is a time to connect with our world. This is a time for the light to shine brightly in the darkness. Now, it's very helpful for some of us who are coasting, perhaps, in our Christian life and maybe floundering as to our worldview and value system. But you know the darker the world gets, the brighter even dim lights shine. But you know, this is a time for the church to shine brightly. This is a time for God's people to live with purpose. This is a time not to flee, not to get away, not to check out. This is a time to engage. We're looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture this morning in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9. If you've been around at all, you know that we're working our way relatively slowly through Matthew. We've had a few interruptions this summer. Um, But we're in the end, concluding verses of chapter 9. My understanding is that Dr. Shupi will take you on into chapter 10 uh, in the next couple weeks. We'll just uh, leave that up to him. If he wants to, that's fine with me. These verses in Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 35 through verse 38, uh, some of you will notice are quite familiar, perhaps at a missions conference. You've uh, seen or used this text, and you've been reminded uh, that this is a great missionary text. I'd like us to read our text, and then I want us to draw from our text this morning three, let's call them dynamics, three aspects or dynamics of the life and ministry of Christ that really provide a template for living as Christ models for us how to interface with this world. Let's begin in verse 35. We've left off at verse 34. 9.35 of Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send send out laborers into his harvest. The first dynamic that I want us to take in out of the text that provides a template or a model for us, a challenge to our mindset today perhaps, is number one, that Jesus focused on people. Jesus focused on people. Jesus did not flee from people. Now, I know that early in the morning he would rise and he would have a quiet time. He would refresh himself in prayer and and solitude with his heavenly father. I know, though, that um, though even in the Old Testament on occasion, by instruction from God, some of the prophets, some of the leaders were told to go and isolate themselves. You just don't find in Scripture, in the model of Christ, or in the teaching of the epistles, the instruction of God's people, it's never to flee from people, it's always to engage with people. And we have here in the beginning of our text, number one, the reality that Jesus focused on people. Verse 35, let's break it down. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You might recall, if you've been reading in Matthew, and I 
Uh, and remember back at the end of chapter 4, right before we broke into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew recorded for us a summary of the opening uh, months and weeks of our Lord's public ministry. And Matthew 4.23 reads very similarly that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's almost verbatim what is repeated, and Matthew repeats that in 9.35 from 4.23. We recognize by this repetition that this is a pattern. What I get from this, first of all, is I want you to see that as Christ was focused on people, number one, he was intentional. He was intentional. You know, he didn't just haphazardly wander around the country. Notice what it says. He went throughout all the cities and the villages. Now, you need to know that this area is an area that's about uh, 40 miles wide, this Galilean region, and about 70 miles long. You need to also know that our Lord in his deity linked with his humanity He's such a model of excellent leadership and time management. He's a model for everything, of course. You know that our Lord didn't just get up and wonder what in the world he was going to do that day. But it was with great intentionality that he rose and he connected with the people of this region. It was the pattern of his ministry. It was what he modeled for us that he regularly connected with people. It was interesting. I was reading in one of my commentaries um, that there was some records taken by a, a, a historian that lived in this first century named Josephus. Some of you might recognize that name. Let me just read from the commentary about what it says about what this Galilean area or zone was like, this 40 by 70 area. It says, we learn from the Jewish historian Josephus that at this time there were some 200 cities and villages in the region of Galilee, an area about 40 miles wide and 70 miles long. Now a quote from Josephus. Josephus said, The cities are numerous and the multitude of villages everywhere. He went on to say, They are crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them contains above 15,000 inhabitants. So based on this assessment, uh, Galilee then contained at least 3 million people, most of whom could have direct exposure to Jesus. And don't you know that's exactly what he intended? It was with intentionality that Jesus would come into these cities. A city was often marked out by, with a wall or some kind of a barricade so that they could defend themselves. When it uses the word village, it was more the idea of uh, more in the rural or country area. And they did not have a defined border or defined city limit. And they didn't have walls. And our Lord ministered. And isn't that the testimony of the Gospels? I mean, we regularly read in the gospel where Jesus was on, he was traveling, he was walking, and then he would come into town and he would look up and find a little man in a tree, right? Or he would come along and he would be approaching a village called Nain and there was a man being brought out in a funeral procession. And our Lord, with great intentionality, covered this whole region. Think about it, three million people in this small area, these cities and these villages. He didn't flee from them. He engaged with them. Jesus was focused on people. Number one, he was intentional. Number two, I want you to notice that he was expositional. He was expositional in his ministry with people. And this, for some of us, might be a little bit more difficult to model. But let's just understand what the text is saying. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, and he was teaching in their synagogues. And that's an interesting point that... 
um, about uh, 500 years before our Lord, uh, Lord's ministry, about 586 B.C., the Babylonian captivity started. That's when Nebuchadnezzar, this would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those stories. It was when out of disobedience to God, Israel came under judgment. And one of the forms of judgment that God used was to bring in um, enemy kings to sweep in upon them and to disrupt, tear down, to steal, plunder, and captive, take captive their people. And none was used in a greater way than Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he came down, and we call this the Babylonian captivity, and he swept down. This is when, how Daniel ended up up there and ended up in the lion's den. And they tore down the walls, they burned down the villages, they tore down the temple, and what happened, starting about 500 years before Christ, there was no longer a temple which would have been approachable in this 40 by 70 mile region uh, with with the annual holy calendar, the calendar of the feasts. And the sacrifices, the the Jewish people would have come regularly to the temple, but that was all destroyed. And so um, rabbis and religious leaders and the men of the community began to build synagogues. And that's when synagogues started. And when you approached every village, every town would have had a synagogue. And they were marked with a pole, and kind of like our steeple today. And so our Lord would have been able to approach a village, approach a town, and just by looking up, He would be able to see the pole, and He would be able to go right to the synagogue. And it was His pattern to go to the synagogue, and notice what it says. And what He did there, He was teaching in their synagogues. So visiting rabbis, it was very customary and acceptable for a visiting teacher or a guest, or sometimes even any of the males in the community, could open up the scriptures and expound the scriptures. And our Lord did this. You'll recall the time that he was reading from Isaiah, remember? And he said, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your presence. He was unfolding and explaining. He was, we call this, expositing the scripture, explaining the scripture. And so this became a great tradition in the synagogues. And in fact, it's what we're carrying out even today. The unfolding of scripture. We gather together as God's people. We open the word and we just unfold it. It's one reason why we start at the beginning of a book and we go all the way through it. We call it exposition or expositional preaching. And our Lord Jesus himself did that. Um, There was a scholar at this time, a Jewish scholar named Philo, who lived in Alexandria, Egypt during the time of Christ. And he wrote about the synagogues that they are mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of scripture. Now they did prayers and so forth there. And they had a regular ritual when they met at the synagogue. But notice that Philo even recorded that one of the characteristic activities of the synagogue was the reading and the exposition of scripture. Our Lord would have been reading Moses. He would have been reading perhaps the song. They would have sang the songs or psalms or chanted. Uh, The prophets um, would have been available. Remember, Jesus was reading Isaiah when he did the self-proclaimed fulfillment of it. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the prophets, and, but mainly Moses writing of the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would unfold the scrolls, they would read them, they would discuss them, they would unfold them. So our Lord's ministry was not only intentional, but it was expositional. I want you to notice that the other thing that he did was that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. The third thing I want you to notice about his ministry and interaction with people, not only was it a text-based ministry, but it was a confrontational ministry. I use the word confrontational because, you know, you cannot introduce the gospel of the kingdom to people without upsetting them a little bit. You see, everybody doesn't just get to go to heaven. You do know that, right? 
And the message of Christ wasn't just like, peace, love, dove. Come along, knit daisy chains with me. Eat birdseed. Feel good about yourself. The gospel of the kingdom, if you'll recall, um, in, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus started his public ministry, and Matthew recorded that, what did he say? His message in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 17, was when he very first began his ministry, Matthew recorded, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says right here that he was proclaiming, he was preaching the gospel. So our Lord would speak with authority and with strength, and he would confront people people with the new covenant, with the reality of the fact that the old ways are insufficient. You cannot keep the law in and of yourself and convince God that you're good enough to get to heaven. That's a real problem. You recognize that, right? That you just can't be good enough to get your good works to outweigh your bad works. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus emphasized that. He pointed at the crowd, remember, and he would say, and your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. You know, you could hear the wind go out of them, the breath go out of the room. They're outside, but just, how could anybody be more righteous than the Pharisees? Well, the whole point is that you can't be. You can't be good enough to get there. And that's the whole point of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And when Jesus proclaimed this gospel, it was that He had come to fulfill the Scriptures. That by faith and trust in Him alone, you would have salvation. How does this work? Well, ultimately, He's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He was heading to the cross. He wasn't there yet. But He was proclaiming and unfolding this gospel That you in and of yourself would be incomplete to stand before a holy and righteous God and convince Him that you're good enough to get into heaven. I hope that no one in the room today thinks you can do that. I think that people think that sometimes. They think, well, you know what? I'm going to get there in front of the white throne, the pearly white gates in the throne, and God's going to look at me, and we'll have a conversation, and God gets me. God just gets me. He understands me. Yeah, He does get you. He will get you. But more important than that, He loves you. He loves you so much that He solved your problem for you. You see, the Bible is so clear that works of righteousness cannot get you into heaven and that all of our works are as filthy rags. The the greatest thing we can do would be like waving some kind of filthy, nasty, yucky rag in front of God and say, see how good I am? And He said, no, I don't see how good you are. You're a sinner to the core. But Jesus came out of obedience to God to fulfill the plan that out of his love and kindness, God would provide the ultimate sacrificial lamb. That's the gospel. To go to the cross and once for all shed his blood and pay the penalty for our sin. So that when we go to the cross now, spiritually speaking and in faith believing, that there's no works of our own, nothing we can do to impress God. We just go to the cross and we admit our sinfulness and we recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, paid the price for our sin, and we can enter into new life in Him. And so He gives us His righteousness and we dump our trash on Him. We give Jesus all of our sinfulness. He paid for it on the cross. And His righteousness, because He did keep the law, He was perfect, and He imputes, He He delivers that over to us and puts it on our account so that then I can stand boldly before a a holy God. He says, why should I let you into my heaven? And I basically say, you really shouldn't, but um, my faith and trust is in Christ alone. And 
I'm marked by his righteousness only. I don't have to be afraid to die. I don't don't have to worry about the future. The righteousness of Christ robes me and God sees me as his child when I come to him and admit my sinfulness and believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the gospel. Do you know you you can't share the gospel of Christ without being confrontational? People have to know that they're sinners. People don't like that. People have to know that they're not good enough to jump their way into heaven. That's confrontation. People have to know that the wages of their sin is death. That's confrontation. They've got to think a whole new way. They've got to offload and take on what the Bible says. That's confrontational. Jesus was intentional, expositional, confrontational. Notice that he was practical as we hurry on. And he was healing every disease and every affliction. Now, what could be more practical and helpful for Jesus to walk into town and you've been sitting in the dirt um, for about 40 years, stone blind, and Jesus spits, makes a little mud, smears it on your eyes and makes you see, or he just speaks the word, or he just touches you and shriveled up legs come back. That's really practical, you know? And what you see here is what's coming in verse 36 is you see the compassion of Christ. He didn't just have a theological message for people. He had a helping hand for people. He cared about people. You know, Christ's church should be that way. I think we need to keep it in that order. The most important thing that we can do for anyone is to share the words of eternal life with people. And if you've only got a half hour with somebody, you better share Christ with them. Help them pick up their trash later. But... But we want to be helpful and practical like Christ was. We can't heal the lame like he could. We can't make the blind to see. But you know, we can, we can lift heavy loads with people. We can stay up into the night when people are grieving. We can come alongside needy people, help meet their needs, help them organize their lives. The church of Jesus Christ should be a helpful place filled with practical people. Not just people who have their minds stuck in heaven. And you know, if you're out on the shores of Twin Lakes by yourself, 200 miles from nowhere, when the bush pilot drops you off, there just isn't anybody there to be practical with. And our Lord was practical and helpful. What a model for us. Um, He was focused on people. I want you to see then also that he was fueled by pity. The second dynamic or the second aspect that Christ models for us, not only was he focused on people, verse 35, but 36, I want us to look back at our text, that he was fueled by pity. And when he saw the crowds, the text says, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The idea of compassion there in the Greek has the the connotation in the literal working of the Greek language that's translated compassion has to do with intestines or bowels. It means that it is a a deep-seated feeling. You might even have a physiological response of a tightening of your stomach or of a, a picking up of the pulse. Jesus saw the crowds... You know, I sometimes have a problem when I see the crowds being absolutely disgusted with them. Maybe wanting to do mean things. Maybe wishing that they would just all, the earth would open up and they would just all fall in. Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion. Why? Because it says 
they were harassed and helpless. You know, one of the things that we understand is that one of God's attributes is love. In 1 John chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. In verse 8, it says that God is love. Well, if Jesus is God, then Jesus is love. And out of his love comes compassion. We also know that in the theology of love in the Bible, that there's a theology of love. Not only is it reflected in the attributes of God, but it's reflected in the very doctrine or theology of love in Scripture. That we love Him because He first loved us. And then we love our fellow man because God loved us. And that God loved us so much that He sent His only Son to die for us. So you can't look at the crowd and wish them evil and love them at the same time. You can't wish to smash somebody down and love them at the same time. You can't wish somebody would get taken away and love them at the same time. And Jesus looked at the crowd and because they were harassed and helpless, he saw how pitiful people really are. You ever notice that? Have you ever walked in a great hallway filled with people or walked in Walmart or walked in, in an area or in a community where there's a lot of people and you just begin to notice people and you recognize sin has taken a toll. And you can just see in their eyes, you can see in their demeanor. I was with a guy the other day and I thought, sure, he was about 78 years old. Nothing wrong with being 78 if you're 78. But when you find out he's 47... And you realize that is a pitiful man. You you can rail on that guy. You can tell him how stupid he is for repeating his old bad habits. And you can tell him how stupid and dumb he is and inappropriate it was for him to disobey his parents and to drop out of school and to do this and to do that. When Jesus saw people like that, he had compassion. He had compassion. You know, one thing about it, it is characteristic of our Christianity. This kind of compassion, number one, is characteristic of our Christianity You know, to be sympathetic and caring for those who are outside of Christ is unique to Christianity. You think about Hinduism, for example. In Hinduism, if you you walk past someone on the street and they're a beggar or they're broken down or they're weak and poor, it's part of the caste system. You would be doing an an injustice to them. You neglect them on purpose so that they can work out their karma, right? And hopefully in their next life, break out of that and come back better. If I help them, I will foil karma. That's a hateful religion. And how many want to raise their hand this morning and argue with me that Islam is a peaceful religion of love? And the Hindus don't help you. The Islamists won't help you. How will you say, but Pastor Van, I know who will. The Buddhists will help you. Yeah, but you know what? They don't do it driven out of love for their fellow man. They do it because they get to earn points and better themselves in their system if they do that. I'm telling you, you study the world religions and you will find that it is a distinctive defining our Christianity. This kind of compassion that Jesus showed that we should model. Driven by pity. Not only that, but it moves us to generosity, doesn't it? Not only does it define our Christianity, but it moves us to generosity. When you see somebody in need, if you don't have compassion, do you give? Of course you don't. It is when you have pity. It is when you have the mind of Christ and you have the heart of Christ and you're driven with compassion that you'll give up your $20 spending money for a needy person. 
You know, it's interesting to me in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it talks about he that sees his brother in need and doesn't meet that need, doesn't love. It's interesting in the King James Version, in the ESV, it uses the word closes his heart towards him. That means you don't have compassion. In the King James, it, it, it translated that word there in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where we're to be moved by generosity and compassion to our fellow man. It says it, he shutteth up his bowels of compassion. They shouldn't have changed that translation. That is awesome. He shutteth up his bowels of compassion. You know, it has the idea, remember I told you that word compassion has the idea of intestines in it. And compassion. Not only that, this kind of compassion clarifies our priority that people are first. When Christ saw the crowds... He saw people, and he knew that people were more important than anything else, even lions. Um, I know I'm out of time, but I want to, I want to, I jotted down four reasons why people are more important than lions. I'll just rattle them off. I want to tell you, this has been an absolutely crazy week. When leading officials and popular people in our nation can't give a rip about about aborted baby parts and the monstrous Nazi-like activity that's gone on in Planned Parenthood and everybody's all busted up over some guy arrowing a lion. Why is a lion not equal to a human? Number one, lions were not and are not created in the image of God. Therefore, they do not possess the intrinsic worth of a human being. Lions and people are created dramatically unequal. Number two, lions do not have a soul. They will not live in one of two places, heaven or hell, for all of eternity. And Jesus did not die on the cross to redeem lions from their sin. In fact, lions can't sin. Number three, lions will not be resurrected And someday stand before God or receive a heavenly body fit to live eternity, to live for eternity, to worship God and sing his praises. When a lion dies, he just dies and he's dead. Number four, lions, because they do not possess the image of God. Now, some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm right. (laughs) Lions, because they do not possess the image of God, cannot love They cannot show mercy. They cannot give sacrificially. They cannot grieve over a loved one. They cannot forgive an offense. They cannot feel compassion. They they cannot create or invent for the betterment of humankind or even lionkind. They cannot, um, nor can, they cannot commune with God. They are wild beasts created after their own kind, and they cannot be domesticated. They are not human. They are animals, and man was given dominion over them. Now, I'm not arguing that lions should be mistreated or anything like that. I just wanted to clarify that when you have compassion, it is driven out of pity for people, and that is a different kind of pity and compassion than for any other living creature. And when Jesus had compassion on the crowds, it was because he cared deeply about people. This compassion defines our Christianity. It moves us to generosity. It clarifies our priority that people are first. That's enough of that list. Let's finish out. 
The third dynamic that I want you to see is Jesus looked on the crowds with compassion. They were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is a direct implication of the spiritual leaders of the day who were misguiding and misleading these people and abusing their power with people. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Verse 37 then, he gives an instruction, an imperative, and it is our third dynamic of living like Christ. First of all, we focus on people. We're fueled by pity. And we are, number three, to be fervent in prayer. Fervent in prayer. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, the idea in the New American Standard, it says I, I, he beseeches us to pray. He begs us to pray. The, the, and it, the ESV that I'm reading uh, says here that um, pray earnestly. See that? Pray earnestly. The NAS says to beseech. He begs us to pray. The idea of the harvest implies that there's hard work to be done, right? It implies that we need a team of people. It implies that we have limited time because it's harvest time. It is interesting, by the way, that we uh, would read in some commentaries that the idea of harvest here, as it's compared with um, other usages in the Scripture, particularly in the prophets in the Old Testament, and in some eschatological literature of the New Testament, that is, writing in the New Testament that's talking about the things to come, that the idea here is that the harvest has to do with the idea that God is ready with his sickle to come and harvest sinners under the judgment. I'm not 100% convinced that's how Jesus is using it here, but it could be. But it certainly implies that the time is limited. There needs to be a massive workforce for this massive task of going out into the fields of the crowds and harvesting them for God before it's too late is the implication. When the word harvest is used, we certainly understand that it means a limited time. When we see people, what do we see? Do you see people who you hope get what they deserve? Notice that Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, now go quickly and get out with the crowds. His imperative is for us to pray the Lord of the harvest. And he begs us to pray hard. I don't know what you think, but I'm very convicted by this. In fact, I find very often when I align myself with Jesus that I end up like this. Lord, um, I would love to go to Twin Lakes. And the rest of the world can go you know where. But not Jesus' people. Not His church. We don't go away from people. We go towards people. Listen, more than ever, the world needs a text-based ministry of the teaching of God's Word and the shouting out of the Gospel. And then how about, how about the last time you prayed that God would send someone into the harvest? Is it even on record at Fellowship Bible Church in the last few weeks that we've prayed the Lord of the harvest. You know, one thing that prayer does is it makes us sensitive to meet the need ourselves. You know, I think that it's a bit of a wake-up call, this template, this modeling of Christ, that He moved towards people. 
He was moved with pity. He called on us to pray fervently. I'm a little bit embarrassed for myself. And I'm a bit worried about the church I pastor. I'm not down on you at all. We're in this thing together. Forget Twin Lakes, people. These are days when Fellowship Bible Church and us as individuals must engage with people. And how many of us need a major attitude adjustment when we watch and look at the crowds? Some of us need to straighten up and knock it off. We're sinning in our attitude towards the way we see people. And we're not Christ-like at all. And we need to have compassion. They are harassed and helpless. That's the idea of being broken and pinned down. They can't help themselves. It's pitiful, the trap that they're in. And the harvest is coming, and it's a limited time. Pray the Lord of the harvest. Don't you think at the least Fellowship Bible Church should be characterized by lifting up significant, fervent prayer to the Lord of the harvest? Shame on us for our prayerlessness. Let's pray. Oh, Father... Thank you for our great Lord Jesus, this wonderful master of the universe. Thank you for his modeling, for his message, for these uh, dynamics of his ministry from which we can learn and grow and develop, Lord. Father, would you please just um, convict us? And challenge us and show us how to change. Lord, would you give us a love for people? Break us down and give us a compassion in this needy world. That it's people for whom you died. And it's people that you love. And that they need Jesus. Help us to be that kind of a church, Lord. A church that is people-centric a church that is characterized by compassion, a church that is fervent in prayer. I ask that you would accomplish this in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.